Uh, Please turn in them to Luke chapter 3. We're going to be looking at verses 1 through 14. The message called the fruit of repentance. And as we uh, turn to Luke chapter 3, Luke kind of closes out, not just figuratively, but literally the first couple of chapters. We're leaving, yes, if you're fifth grade or younger, you can go. (laughs) There they go. I must catch up. Um, We're closing out Luke's report of the birth narratives of the birth of John the Baptist, the birth of Jesus. We get a glimpse of Jesus at the age of 12 in the temple. Um, These first couple of chapters are... Uh, oriented around laying the foundation for how John the Baptist was born, how Jesus came into the world. And now he takes us two decades ahead, 20 years down the road, to the beginning of the ministry of the gospel. And when I say that, I mean the good news, the the heralding of the kingdom, the message of Christ that he came to bring. John the Baptist is the forerunner of that message. He's the preparer. And as we come to chapter 3 and open this chapter, we have fast-forwarded 20 years into a new time. And uh, Luke wants to give us something of the uh, geographical, geopolitical background of the area of Israel and mention some names that are going to come up again and again throughout the Gospel of Luke and also into his second volume, the book of Acts. So if you have your Bibles with me, let's uh, follow along as I read, beginning in verse 1 from the New American Standard text. Now in the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, when Pontius Pilate was governor of Judea, And Herod the Tetrarch was the Tetrarch of Galilee, and his brother Philip was the Tetrarch of the region of Iturea and Trachonitis. And Lysanias was the Tetrarch of Abilene, and the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas. The word of God came to John, the son of Zacharias, in the wilderness. And he came into all the district around Jordan, preaching a baptism of repentance For the forgiveness of sins, as it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, make ready the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. Every ravine will be filled, and every mountain and hill will be brought low, and the crooked will become straight, and the rough roads smooth, and all flesh will see the salvation of God. And he, John, began saying to the crowds who were going out to be baptized by him, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Therefore bear fruits in keeping with repentance. And do not begin to say to yourselves, We have Abraham for our father. For I say to you that from these stones God is able to raise up children to Abraham. Indeed, the axe is already laid at the root of the tree, so that every tree that does not bear fruit, good fruit, is cut down and thrown into the fire. And the crowds were questioning him, saying, Then what shall we do? 
And he would answer and say to them, The man who has two tunics is to share with him who has none. And he who has food is to do likewise. And some tax collectors also came to be baptized. And they said to him, Teacher, what shall we do? And he said to them, Collect no more than what you've been ordered to. And some soldiers were questioning him, saying, And what about us? What shall we do? And he said to them, Do not make money from anyone by force or accuse anyone falsely, and be content with your wages. Now, we're going to get into John's message in just a moment, but I want to go back to those first couple of verses where uh, Luke tells us something of the background of what's going on at that time in the empire and in the land of Israel and who's on uh, the throne and who's ruling where. And the first thing that he mentions is Tiberius Caesar, who is the emperor of Rome. Now, this is an actual uh, statue of Tiberius, and there are many like it. There's enough testimony that he looked like this. And so how would you like to have your president, you know, look like that? Um, But anyway, he was the guy that was overseeing Rome. Um, He was kind of an iffy sort of character, and toward the end of his life, he went crazy. Um, That happened to a lot of those rulers. I don't know if it was kind of uh, family inbreeding or what. There was more than nepotism going on sometimes. Sometimes it was incest, but uh, there was all, all kinds of things going on. But Tiberius was the guy who was in charge in Rome. And then Luke tells us that Pontius Pilate, you've heard of him, was the governor of Judea. And Herod, one of the sons of Herod the Great, was the tetrarch of Galilee. Philip, his brother, was the tetrarch of Iturea and Trachonitis. And the word tetrarch is kind of like governor or local ruler. Um, It's more than a mayor, but it's less than a king. It's someone that's, uh, well, basically a governor over the area. Lysanias was in Abilene, and Annas and Caiaphas were the high priest. Wow, that sounds weird. There's two people that are the high priest. Luke is very careful to keep high priest in the singular, even though he mentions two people. And the reason for that is because Annas had a number of, he was high priest for a while, and then he had sons and sons-in-law. Caiaphas was his son-in-law. And even though there were a number of successors from his family during his lifetime, Annas never took his thumb off the control. (laughs) He basically used his influence and control over his successors so that, Even though Caiaphas was technically the high priest, Luke is recognizing that Annas was really behind the seat of power in the temple and was running things. And this kind of sets the background for uh, what was the political structure of the time. And like I say, we're going to learn more about this again and again as we come back to these people throughout Luke's story. Now, I think it's helpful when we start talking about the gospel. I've mentioned these guys and, where the, and the names of the places where they were ruling, but do you, do you know where they were? 
you have any more information now than you did five minutes ago, other than learning some names? <laughs> Probably not, because we don't really know where these places are unless you have a good grasp of geography. So I want to give you an overview this morning of the land of Israel, kind of take a satellite view and uh, look down on it and, and get a picture in mind. There's some, there's some landmarks that you ought to kind of lock in here. And one of those landmarks is that big blue body of water to the east that is the Mediterranean Sea. That ought to be kind of uh, imprinted in your mind. And then up toward the top of the map that I have up there is a small body of water just inland. Um, we're going to talk about that in a moment. And then there's a valley through which a river runs to a larger body of water at the bottom. And that has a specific name. And everything that happens in the Gospels, for the most part, occurs around these two bodies of water and this region that we call the land of Israel. The lake at the top and the region surrounding it is Galilee. And several years, at least two years of Jesus' ministry, occur around Galilee. He calls some of his disciples from the shores of the Sea of Galilee, where they were fishers, uh, fishermen. In fact, um, the Sea of Galilee was very rich in terms of seafood and uh, you know, life, whereas the one to the south of it, which is the Dead Sea, we'll see in a second, was not. The Dead Sea, well, it's dead. <laughs> Nothing lives there. The valley in the middle... Between the two is the Jordan River Valley, through which the Jordan River runs. And if you recall, when the Israelites back in the Exodus were going to march into the land of Canaan, they crossed the Jordan River from west going east. They crossed over that Jordan into the land of Canaan to begin their journey through Canaan's land. And then down at the bottom, that larger body of water is the Dead Sea. And I didn't have a place to write Jerusalem kind of where it really belonged. But Jerusalem is over there in the hill country up on the, uh, the highlands above the Jordan Valley and above the Dead Sea. One of the things that confuses modern readers of Scripture is when we say, I'm going up, we usually mean north. I'm going up to Minnesota. When we say we're going down, we usually mean south. I'm going down to Florida. At least people that have some geographical orientation <laughs> to speak that way. In the Bible, most often it refers not to uh, whether we're going uh, north or south, but it refers to whether we're going uh, up or down, literally. And Jerusalem is always up. It doesn't matter where you are in the land of Israel, you go up to Jerusalem. So if you're down south, you go up to Jerusalem. If you're up north, you go up to Jerusalem, because you're going up the uh, mountainside, as it were, or at least the hillside, going up to uh, Jerusalem. Where this fits into the entire picture is that, uh, is that working? Oh, yep, 
I'm not working, but that's working. That's good. Um, the way it fits into the entire picture is that little inset is what we've been looking at, and the the larger inset in the lower corner shows the whole Mediterranean region where the land of Israel is up there above the Sinai Peninsula and uh, the Nile River in Egypt and south of uh, Asia and Europe sitting right there on the west side of the Mediterranean Sea. Now, what about where these guys were? Well, Philip was up north. Lysanias was a Roman appointee. We don't know hardly anything about him, and he never really shows up again in the gospel. Herod Antipas, the son of Herod the Great, shows up very significantly later on in the trial of Jesus. That red zone is all the land of Judea. Pilate was appointed to be the governor there because Herod's son, Archelaus, was so rotten that the Jews couldn't even stomach him. And they preferred Pilate over him. And eventually Rome just kind of got rid of him and installed Pilate as the governor in that region. And then Caiaphas, of course, was in the temple. So this gives us the backdrop that Luke wants us to know to anchor the ministry of John the Baptist and Jesus in history. You would think that we could pinpoint it quite closely because Luke says in the 15th year of Tiberius' reign as emperor. Unfortunately, even though Luke was a careful historian, there are several things that we don't know. He had a choice of three different calendars to go by. We don't know which one he was using. He also had a choice of marking the beginning of Tiberius' reign from when he came alongside to take over, kind of like the vice emperor <laughs> grooming for the job, versus several years later when he actually took over. So it would be nice if we could say, oh, Luke has pinpointed this for us precisely, but unfortunately we don't know which data Luke was using, the best we can construct is that this time period is about A.D. 28. And in this time period, somewhere between A.D. 26 and 28, both John the Baptist and Jesus are 30 years old. Now, down in Jerusalem, Caiaphas is the high priest over the temple and over the religious life of the nation. And for the Jews, they kind of took the Herods and that family sort of with a grain of salt. They didn't like them at all, and they were full of mischief. They were awful leaders. Caiaphas wasn't a lot better. They positively hated Rome. But the central life of the people of Israel was the religious life oriented around the temple and their worship. That was their center. And you can look at this layout of Herod's temple and realize this was a hugely prominent landmark feature in the city of Jerusalem. If you were to look at that central uh, building right in the middle of everything, that's actually the holy place. And in the daytime, 
approaching it would look something like this. Those semicircular steps that go up to the openings to the holy place, that's about three stories worth. So imagine the immensity of this temple area and how many people you know, could be in the court, how many people could actually uh, fit inside there, but the enormity of the temple itself. Uh, the Jews were very, very proud of that. At nighttime, they might look out from their balconies and see something shimmering in the moonlight that looked kind of like that because much of it was actually overlaid with gold. And so whether it was sunlight or moonlight, it would have been very, very reflective. Now Luke takes us to the ministry of John the Baptist, and he tells us about his ministry. And notice where John the Baptist is when God says to him, John, it's time to preach. The word of God came to John, the son of Zacharias, in the wilderness. And he came into all the district around Jordan, preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sin. I don't know how long John had been in the wilderness, but he was living out there, communing with God, being prepared spiritually for the ministry that he was going to have to the people of Israel. He knew from his father Zacharias and from growing up and his mother, he knew that he was appointed to be the forerunner of Messiah and that at the appropriate time, he would begin a ministry that would usher in the Messiah. He was baptizing in the River Jordan. And whether you go into the desert regions and wilderness area of Jordan, it looks kind of like that. How would you like to be baptized in the Jordan River like that? In fact, people that visit Israel today often do want to be baptized in the Jordan just to have that experience. And uh, it doesn't look a whole lot different today but it doesn't look that way everywhere we don't know exactly where John was baptizing we know it was down there near the Dead Sea near Jerusalem but it could have looked like that because that's also the Jordan River in the springtime and with the rains and when it's very verdant and lush um, somewhere down in that region John came preaching and according to Isaiah he was the voice of one crying in the wilderness, Make ready the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Every ravine will be filled, every mountain and hill will be brought low. The crooked will be straight, the rough roads smooth, and all flesh will see the salvation of God. You realize, of course, that Isaiah is not talking about the geography. He's talking about the heart. He's talking about the preparation of one's spirit, knocking off the rough edges, preparing the ground, getting us ready to receive uh, the message of the Lord and to experience um, what it is that God wants to do in our lives. John's message did not mince words. How would you like to go out and hear a revival preacher um, Come on and go with me to this preacher tonight. He's going to tell us all how we're a bunch of snakes. 
that need to repent. That was the message of John the Vi- uh, John the Viper. <laughs> I love it when your tongue gets tied. <laughs> John the Baptist, who said, "You brood of vipers, you pile of snakes, nasty, snarling, deceptive snakes, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come?" And his message was to bring fruit in keeping with repentance. John says an interesting thing here. He says, don't say to me, we're children of Abraham. We're special. We are privileged class. Because God is able to raise up from these stones children to Abraham. I don't know if he was going back to Genesis, but you know, that's how we got here in the first place. God took dust of the ground and formed out of it a man and breathed into his nostrils a breath of life and he became a living soul. But what's more important here is the message that John is giving of theological significance. What he's telling us is, though God desires us, he does not need us. That's a hard pill for some people to swallow. A lot of people have the idea that, you know, uh, somehow we're necessary to God's being. But the scripture makes it plain that God is independent and self-sufficient and has need of nothing. The fact is, he desires us. I don't know how that speaks to your heart, but I remember growing up as a child, and most of you know that I was adopted. Growing up as a child, as I learned, some, some children who are adopted have a, a strange perception that they were rejected by their own mother or rejected by their own parents. Somehow or another, I never had that feeling, at least not consciously. What I was aware of is that I was chosen by my parents, that they wanted me, that they brought me into their home. They didn't have to do that. They chose to do that. I don't know, even in my childish thinking, I somehow figured my birth mother must have had a good reason why I wasn't with her and later on in my life I got to know her and found out indeed she did and her concern was principally for my well-being but my adoptive parents chose me because they wanted me we need to recognize with God that he does not need us to fill some void in his life he is completely self-sufficient, but he does want us. He desires us. He wants us to come and fellowship with him and to be in our lives. And as John preached the message, he basically was saying to the, um, the crowds, don't think you're special. Don't think that just because you're Israelites, 
God overlooks your sin and treats you as though um, you can do anything you want to do because he, he, he kind of hinges his reputation on you and he needs you. He says, God is able to raise up children from the stones, but rather bring fruit in keeping with your repentance. In the scripture, and some of you have heard me teach on this before, but there are two words for repentance. One is metamelomai, and the other one is metanoia. Most often, people have metamelomai. What that basically is, is a sense of regret. It's sorrow. Have you ever heard of the term buyer's remorse? You know, that's when you go out and spend a bunch of money on something, you get it home, you look at it, and you think, well, I don't have my money anymore, and I got this, and it's really not as great as I thought it was going to be. That's buyer's remorse. Um, sometimes people are sorry they got caught, but they're not really sorry they did whatever they did. You know, uh, again, growing up, we had one of those cookie jars with a big heavy glass lid. we still got one of those cookie jars with a big heavy glass lid, and it's not my mother's anymore, it's ours. But anyway, growing up, we had one of those, and, you know, every once in a while I'd want to get a cookie when I wasn't supposed to. And you just couldn't put the lid back down without making some noise. I mean, I worked and worked at that. But, uh, you know, my mother would hear it, uh, the, the ceramic clang. Are you in the cookie jar? No. You know, and I was foiled, and so I didn't get my cookie right then. I'd have to come back later when she wasn't listening. Because I really wasn't sorry that I was taking the cookie, I was sorry that I got caught. That is um, metamelomai. It's that sense of remorse that you've been found out or the consequences of your action. But there's really no heart sorrow that brings about a change. Metanoia, on the other hand, is a word that means to change your thinking to come into alignment, in this case, with God. To agree that God's assessment of your behavior is correct. And furthermore, to change your behavior in a way that becomes consistent with the opposite direction. Strangely enough, <clears throat> metanoia does not necessarily have to be accompanied by a lot of emotion. You know, you, you always hear stories of people coming to forward to the altar to weep and, uh, you know, shed tears and have all this heartfelt emotion. And oftentimes they... They've kind of had their cry now, and they go away, and they're not really changed. I would rather have someone who just sits right, right there where you're sitting, but in your heart of hearts, come to the conclusion that God is right and you're wrong, 
And that from this moment forward, you're going to walk in the way that God has prescribed, regardless of the cost, and your life is going to change in alignment with His will. And you may or may not have a great deal of feeling associated with that decision, but that change of mind and change of direction is truly repentance. And John says when you have that kind of repentance, there is a change of behavior. Notice the question of the crowds. What shall we do? And notice who was in the crowd. You would expect many of the ordinary people from Jerusalem and the surrounding area to be there, wouldn't you? A lot of the Jews. But there's tax collectors in the crowd. Now, a tax collector in the time of Jesus was a despised and hated individual. And the reason was because they would make an agreement with the Roman Empire to collect taxes from their own people. Rome kind of had enough sense not to put Romans out there to collect money from the Jews. They picked peoples from the regions that were of like descendants. And so Jews would say, hey, I will be a tax collector. It meant that they were taking from their own people to give to Rome, which the Jews hated. But it also gave them license through the power of that office to collect more than Rome expected. So that they not only got a salary, but they gave themselves a bonus. And if you disagreed with a tax collector, you could go to prison. So... That was not a good situation to be in. And these guys would tr be traitors to their own people to align themselves with Rome in order to fill their pockets. They're out there at the Jordan listening to the message of John the Baptist. Now, anytime you get a bunch of the Jewish people together, and you throw some tax collectors into the mix, and they're meeting outside of town, Rome gets nervous. They're concerned about insurrection and rebellion. And so what do they do? They send soldiers out there to keep an eye on things. And what happens to the soldiers? They come under the Spirit of God in the preaching of John the Baptist. This is genuine revival. This is a powerful moment when the Spirit of God is touching everyone that gets near this. Listen, back in the days of the Great Awakening, a few hundred years ago, when George Woodfield was coming to the United States to preach, there is one eyewitness account that is quite fascinating. This eyewitness tells the story of being on his way to hear the preaching of George Whitfield when behind him he hears the roar of horses' hooves and the rising dust 
and it sounds like the whole world is crashing in on him. And as he turns to look, he says, I saw coming over the hill hundreds of people on horseback, wagons, all manner of transportation, rushing to the town to hear George Whitfield preach. That is not because of slick advertising. In fact, they didn't even have slick advertising in those days. That is because the Spirit of God was on the hearts of the people to draw them to his message in a time of supernatural awakening. In the great prayer revival of 1856, 57, 58, along in there, as that revival movement began in a small location in New York and began to spread throughout the area and eventually covered the country, the testimony is that ships <clears throat> approaching the harbor as much as 10 miles out from land would come under the power of God. And sailors and passengers would fall down on the decks of the ship in repentance and grief for their sins and beg for the mercy of God. Friends, these are unusual times when the Spirit of God gets a hold of people in such a powerful way that even the Roman soldiers are being impacted by this message. And all of them have one question. What should we do? How do we need to change? It's surprising that John says to the average ordinary citizens who are good law-abiding folk, he pinpoints what we call sins of omission. He says, if you have two tunics, share one with a neighbor that doesn't have one. And if you have food, share with those who are lacking. In other words, John says, if you're truly repentant and coming into alignment with God, then live a life that is full of love and compassion for the people around you. This is the nature of God. Come into alignment with Him. Share what you have. Show interest in your neighbor. This is the fruit of repentance for you. For the tax gatherers who had their use of their office to fill their own pockets, he said to them, collect no more than what you've been told. Stop using your office as a means of extortion and begin to live appropriately with those around you. And then he said to the soldiers, for you who are soldiers, don't use your position to extract money. Uh, soldiers could do a lot of things. And they were protected by law. And they could do a lot of things to prevent others from, uh, you know, whatever they wanted to do to them. And so they would say, I'm going to take these as provisions. Or you have to carry my stuff X, X amount of uh, distance. You have to take care of me. And John said, 
for you who are soldiers, treat your office with respect and treat people with respect. And don't take what doesn't belong to you and extract from them. So I have a question for you this morning. Have you been baptized with the baptism of repentance? Are you at a place in your life where you are open to God and willing to agree with Him concerning anything He says to you about your behavior? You know, a lot of people are waiting for revival. They're expecting something that they can't control, that maybe someone will show up on the scene. I understand Billy Graham is going to be preaching his last message telecast in November. Billy Graham is the end of a great era of evangelistic preachers in many respects. Others are waiting for the revivalists to come. Or they're waiting for some special outpouring. And, and until that happens, we kind of sit around saying, well, there's nothing we can do about the spiritual dryness. I have news for you. You can have revival. You can personally have revival. You can be renewed in your spirit. You can have a fresh outpouring of God's Spirit if, like the message of John, you are willing to agree with God concerning anything He touches in your life. If you are willing to be open to the work of the Holy Spirit to break up the hardened heart. If you're willing to change your behavior in keeping with his expectations. You can experience the outpouring of God's Spirit in your own life. You know, the interesting thing is, if enough people in this room were to come to that total transparency with God and genuine repentance and openness of heart, then there would come a day when we would come together to worship and there would be enough revived individuals that the Spirit of God would break out upon the group and there would be a revived church. Revival, in some senses, is a sovereign work of God, but in other senses, it's a work that can be negotiated between you and Him right now. Have you experienced a baptism of repentance? I don't mean you have to go in the Jordan and get wet. I mean, has your heart come to that place where you have made a choice to have done with your own ways and to come into alignment with God's? John the Baptist prepared the way for Jesus Christ by getting the hearts of the people open to God. Father, I pray that you would move upon us in a similar fashion, and that you would exalt and bring glory and honor to the name of Jesus Christ. We pray in his very special and precious name. Amen.